You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK Services uh, Principal David Leach. David, how are you? And it's been a very busy week. It's been a busy week in the for all of us, Giles, and I trust all our listeners well. It's been a particularly busy uh, week for me, although I've done my best to get away from it because one of my daughters is getting married this Saturday here at the house. And of course, uh, what do you do then? Uh, like any good dad, you retreat to the study and put the headphones on and pretend <laughs> nothing's happening. I'm not too sure that's entirely the appropriate result, David, but congratulations. And um, I, I hope you managed to find a way about all the rules, which I think the last time I heard said no singing, no dancing, no um, no mingling. So, um, well, yes. Actually, those, those rules have been relaxed, Giles, and we must get back to electricity. But in my case, the main rule is no speeches from me. I've been uh, banned from making speeches. They've been regarded as too provocative or embarrassing uh, or, or, or both. But anyway, let's let's get back to talking about interesting electricity and what a week it's been. Well, exactly. Um, yes, look, it has been. Um, let's start with Battery Day because I thought that was pretty interesting. And I was actually listening to uh, Battery Day along with about half a million other people. And then you sent me a text saying, um, this is even more exciting than watching a football match from the Premier League. Um, explain why you said that, David. Well, because I think uh, in the end, Tesla is a great example of a vertically integrated company. Um, they set out five steps for improving or lowering the cost of batteries by half and at the same time improving returns to shareholders, uh, which have been pretty good, uh, and increasing the battery range, which is what we all care about. Now, there's a range of things and the market was disappointed because it wasn't all being delivered to them on a plate tomorrow. But uh, what they showed is that by integrating the battery into the car structure, uh, uh, going into their own cell manufacturing, uh, doing uh, technical things like getting rid of the tabs in the in the battery manufacturing process, which improves uh, lowers the resistance of the battery as well as improving the anode and the cathode, going to a larger cell, all uh, and uh, automating the cutting out several steps in the factory. That's what you know, it, and this is what I think for manufacturing. If you're a student of uh, I've been to a lot of factories for building materials and various things over the years, and it's it's just fant- uh, even big gas fields, and it's fantastic to see uh, a modern factory uh, at work. I think for anyone who's thinking of starting up a battery factory in Australia, you better quickly realise just how high the bar is. Absolutely, and um, it's fascinating. I mean, it's just completely vertically integrated. I mean, they they really have positioned themselves so far ahead of the rest of the industry. I just don't know how long it's going to um, for the rest of them to catch up. And I was actually quite intrigued by the fact that um, while Tesla's share price has been going up over the last month or two, um, even the rival battery manufacturers, the bat- or the bat- manufacturers now supply their share price has been going down simply because they think that um, the the market's fearing that Tesla will overtake them. Um, but it's a, it's quite fascinating. David, it um, couldn't be a greater contrast um, what Elon Musk was just talking about and the underpinning of his whole work, which was we need we don't have time to waste, we need to get going. It was a sort of a call to arms, and that's how it was actually interpreted by some of the anal- analysis that I saw. Um, yet in Australia, we saw another stage of this sort of um, policy rollout. This time it was the technology roadmap. Um, I think many people just pointed back to 20 years ago, the same thing happened and the technologies haven't changed. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, Giles, I'm, I'm only going to ask, I'll ask you this question. 
which I actually asked on LinkedIn and I got 6,000 views in two days. In fact, the story behind this is very briefly, I was lying in bed at uh, 11.30 at night and I suddenly had this uh, bright idea, almost like I just hopped out of the shower or uh, Archimedes had just hopped out of the bath um and my wife uh, looked at me in some some amazement and said david what are you doing and said i've just got to write this little thing which was a one question so i'll ask it for you what is the point uh, of having a carbon capture uh, system and incurring the cost why would anyone incur that cost if there's no price on on, on carbon let's not even mind whether it works or doesn't work or how expensive it is why on earth would any private enterprise company put it in if if carbon is free have you got an answer for that one well, I'm just telling you, um, and probably agreeing with the six other thousand people who read your thing and said, "Well, they wouldn't." <laughs> no, <they're> gonna... <laughs> and and that's where that policy, you know, and that's a typical example of where that policy is. And at the same time, we can look around the world and we observe that in the last couple of weeks, I think it is um, Europe, the EC has come up with its uh, 55% reduction by 2035. And you look at the, the suite of incredibly sensible policies that they've got to support that, which include expanding the or tightening the carbon allowances, making the carbon price go up, uh, um, their electric vehicle or decarbonisation of the transport sector, which I'd like to talk about some more if we ever, ever get a chance, uh, and, and various other industry policies, including energy efficiency and the like. Or we can look at China, where we've had some gossip, and no one knows how seriously to take anything out of China these days. Uh, about uh, both the reduction in the share of uh, coal in primary energy, uh, which appears when you work it all through and listen to the Bloomberg guys to imply to something like 100 gigawatts and 40 gigawatts of new solar each year and 40 gigawatts a year of new wind. Now, I'm not sure how right that is, but that was uh, kind of supported those statements by Xi Jinping in a one-sentence comment at the United Nations, probably to uh, move attention away from all the other things going on in China, which he probably doesn't want to talk about so much. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we had the news today, Giles, that in California, or overnight, that California is considering outlawing uh, petrol cars by uh, internal combustion engines by 2035, which is pretty much the same as what they're looking at in Britain. So, you know, uh, <laughs> the well, question, another question, go on, Giles. No, no, no. Well, no, I've been interested in your question. But um, yes, well, Britain's actually thinking about bringing their 2035 date forward to 2030. And um, Norway, um, where more than 50% of of new car sales are already electric, fully electric, are looking by 2025 to ban all new petrol and um, diesel sales, including hybrids and plug-in hybrids. So that just goes to show the difference. What was the question you're going to ask, David? Well, the question I wanted to ask is one that all Australians should ask themselves is, do we want to have the last horse-drawn carriage or do we want to have a car? If you see what I mean. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. No, absolutely. Look, David, I don't think we're going to muck around anymore. Um, well, not mucking around at all. But look, I think it's time to introduce the um, the speaker. Now, you did this interview, so I'm going to let you introduce the person and why you wanted to speak to them and um, I'll have a quick chat about it afterwards. Well, Zeke Housefather is uh, one of the rising uh, authors, stars in the climate change world. I think in the science industry, he's most famous for a, a, a study he did a, a year ago, which with some other people, but he was the lead author, which kind of demonstrated that all the original climate change models from 20 and 30 years ago uh, and more actually were fairly accurate in terms of predicting the rise in the global temperature if you adjust it for the actual amount of carbon that was in the atmosphere. But I first came across him uh, when, because he was the guest author um, who writes the quarterly uh, 
global climate change update uh, for Carbon Brief, which is a fantastic organisation uh, if you're interested in the carbon world. And so I thought uh, Zeke, uh, who, who writes very well and has seems to be fully in command of the science, uh, would be a great person to talk to about what's actually going on in the science now. And he uh, works at the Breakthrough Institute. I should mention uh, before we even start the interview that he told me afterwards that uh, his mother-in-law is uh, staying with him in California because the ha- town where she was living uh, has has burnt down, not necessarily her house. So it was kind of a, a poignant uh, interview from someone in California at the moment. Let's have a listen. Uh, welcome, Zeke House Father, to the Energy Insiders podcast. Um, you, you, as I understand it, you're a climate scientist and an energy systems analyst. Could I ask, what is an energy systems analyst? Sure. So it's a, it's a somewhat general uh, term, but it, it means someone who focuses on what type of energy mix might help us uh, reach different climate mitigation targets. Um, and more broadly, what might the future of energy look like in a decarbonizing world? And, and, and you have a, a background, I believe, in, in data science uh, as, as well as climate science. Is that correct? Yeah, I actually spent about uh, 10 years as an entrepreneur and data scientist in the clean tech world. I co-founded a, an energy efficiency company, worked for a few other ones, um, and then sort of made a career change after that, went back to get a PhD in climate science. Uh, and now that's my main focus. And so I first uh, noticed your work in the state of the uh, climate quarterly briefs that produced for for Carbon Brief, and I, particularly I think the first one of those I saw a couple of years back was just seemed so very comprehensive. And if we talk about the state of the climate, I, I think we're in line to have the warmest or second warmest uh, year in in sort of modern history. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about how you're seeing the state of the climate right now and the sort of, uh, I guess, indicators that you're actually paying attention to? Sure. So uh, it's definitely going to be uh, an extremely warm year in 2020. Um, it'll probably at this point be the second warmest year in most temperature records. Uh, there might be one or two of the the six different groups that produce these records globally that, that has it as the warmest on record. Uh, but there's a growing La Nina event in the tropical Pacific uh, that's really driving temperatures down a bit in the second part of the year. So, you know, odds are it's, it's probably going to be second warmest. Um, that said, you know, the climate doesn't really care about which year is the warmest. It cares about long-term trends. And, and in that respect, you know, 2020 is you know, at or above where we'd sort of expect things to be given the, the warming we've experienced for the last 30 years and, and pretty well in line with what climate models were predicting. Um, but beyond the surface temperature, you know, we're also expecting to see record uh, ocean temperatures this year, though that's kind of an easy one because we see record ocean heat content almost every year. Um, we're expecting to see the second lowest uh, sea ice on record in the Arctic. Um, it should be any day now that we hit the low point. They, they might have already announced it, actually. Um, and it's almost certainly at this point not going to beat 2012 as the lowest year on record, but it'll, it'll definitely be the second lowest. Um, and again, you know, there's been a, a long-term decline since uh, satellite records began in the 1970s uh, of Arctic sea ice. Um, you know, beyond that, uh, the seas are sort of continuing to, to rise at the <laughs> sort of uh, in slightly accelerating sea level rise we've been seeing in recent years. Um, the oceans are start, still getting more acidic. Um, concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are continuing to rise. You know, glaciers are continuing to melt. So a lot of these processes are sort of, you know, build on each other every year. Um, but for the ones that are a lot more variable, like temperature, um, you know, as I mentioned, we think we're probably going to be second place. 
Yeah, that, that's uh, that's my understanding, and I think the sea rise levels about six millimetres last year. And we had a great uh, interview maybe eighteen months ago with. John Englander, who sort of was able to talk about sea level rise in, in a lot of different ways. And in, 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 I think it's some ways the most visible. And at the end of this chat, I hope to come back to a little bit more about the consequences, which is where I think we're all going to move to in a while. And I, 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 I want to ask you a sort of general question I hadn't originally planned to ask, but just about the state of the debate. It seems to me, looking back at some discussions that we used to have five or six years ago, that by and large, the the sort of the consensus, if I can put it that way, or the level of opposition to the idea that climate change is occurring, that that has reduced. Although we can still have big arguments about what needs to be done to it and lots of all that stuff, but but in general, I, I feel that the consensus is becoming more profound. Is would you share that sentiment? I, I think it's certainly true globally, um, and there's a lot of places where you know climate is not or at least the science is not a political issue, right? There may be disagreements between parties about how to best tackle climate change, but the the reality of it is is generally accepted. Um, you know, there's probably a few exceptions. Uh, certainly Brazil recently elected a, a president who is sort of very outspoken in his belief that climate change is, is not happening. And uh, obviously here in the U.S., the uh, Trump administration, you know, recently responded to scientists by saying the uh, we think the world's going to start cooling. So there's certainly outliers out there who are still, you know, denying the science like it's uh, 1999. But uh, most of the rest of us have moved on. Um, that said, the the worrying thing here in the U.S. at least is that, uh, it, particularly in the last eight years or so, um, the climate issue has become a lot more ideologically polarized. Um, and so in many ways, you know, if you want to know whether people accept the science on climate, um, a good w- way to find out is just ask them what their political affiliation is. Um, and that's a little unfortunate because science shouldn't be political, right? A temperature reading is a temperature reading, whether or not you're a Republican or a Democrat here. So if we really want to have durable solutions to climate change, you know, we need to make sure that we can get better understanding and agreement on these issues because we don't want a situation where, you know, we have one government that takes a bunch of actions and the next government, you know, undoes them all, as we sort of saw here in the U.S. with the the Obama and Trump transition. So, you know, globally, I think there's good news on that, but uh, the U.S. is a bit more of a mixed case. Uh, and, it, and it is. And I, 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 you know, change doesn't happen overnight or instantly. It's a, it's a person by person sort of uh, thing. And I, um, I just also, and when you say that science shouldn't be political and facts are facts of course that's true but the interpretation of those facts and uh, what to do about them is always very political and I actually think there's always been a political element to science but I don't want to talk too much about that I I would like to ask uh, if you have any sort of view or insight as to how China which uh, is actually uh, what you see from on the science side about how serious uh, I guess the consensus in China uh, is about climate change and therefore how likely there is to be any action and we're so far off what I was going to talk about it's silly but anyway (laughs) it is interesting um you know I'm not an expert on you know political and public opinions on on climate change in China by any means you know the I know uh, a lot of researchers in China who are doing quite excellent climate research and and from talking to them you know it doesn't seem like there's much disagreement in and certainly in scientific circles there about the the reality of climate change um and, you know, China is an interesting country in that it's both the biggest driver of, of coal today, 
but also the biggest installer of renewable energy in the world by a fairly significant margin. Um, and so it'll be interesting to watch sort of the direction they take. Um, I feel like particularly now when they're trying to recover from economic disruption uh, due to COVID-19 and, and a general economic slowdown they're experiencing before then, there's a real question of are they going to sort of double down on, on coal as a path forward uh, in sort of subsidizing heavy industry, or are they going to try to take a different tact and, and embrace clean energy a bit more? And they, more than any other country, can really shape the future of our emissions. So it's a, a really critical question. Yeah, it, it, it is a critical question. And uh, it, it, it's something I'll keep an eye on for sure. And, and, and Australia has a strong relationship with China. And so it's something we, we think about down under here a lot. Let me ask you about something that you have written about, and that is the new range of climate change models. I mean, we talk a lot about climate science, and most of us believe it, but we don't necessarily understand the actual science and the way uh, the models are actually con constructed. Um, I guess it's the it comes down to the climate forcing. You know, if we increase the CO2 levels, how much does the temperature change? I believe that's the equilibrium climate sensitivity, which is measured, which is represented as the change in temperature uh, for a doubling of the atmospheric carbon level. Have I got that definition broadly right? Yep. Uh, so when we talk about climate sensitivity, we're, we're broadly talking about, you know, if you were to double CO2 in the atmosphere, how much warming would you get, you know, after a few hundred years when the, the system reaches equilibrium? Um, and that number has been remarkably difficult to reduce, you know, over the entire history of climate science. Um, back in 1979, there was a, a major report called the Charney Report that for the first time tried to put a real number on this. And they said, you know, we think we'll probably get somewhere between 1.5 and 4.5 degrees warming if we double CO2 in the atmosphere. Uh, and lo and behold, 30 years later, in the last IPCC report, <laughs> the range they gave is if we double CO2 in the atmosphere, we'll probably get between 1.5 and 4.5 warm degrees warming. Now, we've learned a lot about the climate system since then, and th that early estimate was probably way too confident. It just kind of ended up being lucky that it was right. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are some really hard to reconcile and, and reduce uncertainties. Um, and to put that, to, to give a little bit of a background to that, you know, if you were to just double CO2 in the atmosphere and do nothing else, leave everything exactly as it is today uh, with your magic wand, you know, we'd end up with a bit above one degree of warming. Uh, and almost everyone agrees on that. Like, that's not where the uncertainty is. It's not the direct effect of CO2 on uh, the, the amount of heat that's being trapped by the, the um, atmosphere that's the area of uncertainty. Where the uncertainty lies is what are the feedbacks that then occur. So for example, as the earth warms from the CO2, more water evaporates um, from the oceans, from lakes, from rivers. Uh, water vapor itself is a very powerful greenhouse gas, but it's not one that can shift the climate by itself because that is a very short lifetime in the atmosphere. But the initial warming from CO2 then means you have more water vapor in the atmosphere, which acts as a feedback to that CO2 warming. Uh, and water vapor alone, you know, almost doubles or more than doubles, actually, the amount of warming you just get from CO2. Um, then, of course, there are changes in clouds. So as the Earth warms, as you get more water vapor in the atmosphere, you end up with changes in clouds that are somewhat hard to predict. And the question there is, like, how much more high clouds, which trap heat, or low clouds, which reflect incoming sunlight, do you get? And the mix of, of those really has a big impact on how much the Earth ends up warming. Um, and then there's various other feedbacks, you know, as the Earth's temperature increases, a lot of places that are used to have snow covering them for much of the year have much less snow. Snow is very reflective. 
So the sun's rays bounce off the snow back, bounce back into space. Uh, if you melt the snow and replace it with tree canopies or, or fields, or uh, if you're talking about melting sea ice, open water, that's much darker and it absorbs much more of the sun's energy and then actually causes much more warming. Um, so that's what we call the albedo feedback. Uh, and then finally, there's the feedback that you know we really are always thankful for called the Planck feedback because it what's what's it's what keeps the Earth from sort of having a runaway greenhouse effect. And the Planck feedback essentially says that the amount of energy that's lost back to space from the surface of the planet increases with the fourth power of temperature. And I, I don't want to get too technical here, but essentially, you know, as the Earth warms, it starts releasing a lot more energy back into space, which helps cool it off a little bit. And so that you know, acts as a countervailing factor against all these other feedbacks to prevent the Earth from sort of, you know, following the pathway of Venus and having all of our oceans boil and, uh, you know, not not where yeah. we want to head. <laughs> no, that's that was uh, very uh, helpful. And I've got a clearer idea of it now than I had previously. Uh, so this conversation's been worth it for that alone uh, to me. Um, let me ask then, uh, in I understand there's a new sort of middle of the road climate sensitivity uh, uh, representative pathway, socioeconomic pathway. That, that word socioeconomics never going to go over that well with some people, but nevertheless, uh, which kind of disc, um, uh, is the business as usual case? In, in, in your opinion, in, in that case, uh, where do you think, uh, if we stay on that, we'll be in uh, the temperature rise in, in, in I don't know, 20 years time. So there's been a lot of debate in the last year around sort of what what path the world is on today um, and what are sort of realistic futures that we should model and should contemplate. Um, you know, I've written a fair bit about this, but one of the biggest areas of controversy was around this scenario uh, that came out in the last IPCC report, so back in 2013. Uh, called RCP 8.5. It's a jargony term. It stands for Representative Concentration Pathway 8.5. Um, and the 8.5 is the amount of, of forcing in the atmosphere at the end of the century. Uh, but essentially, it's it's a scenario where you know the world triples its emissions by 2100 compared to today's levels. We're burning six times more coal uh, by the end of the century than we're burning today. And you end up with you know, four and a half, five degrees warming. Uh, truly a catastrophic scenario. Uh, and a lot of the literature after that scenario came out referred to it as business as usual. Now, you know, back when that scenario was first created, which is in the, the mid to late 2000s, the idea of, of the world using six times more coal by the end of the century might have seemed, you know, somewhat plausible, right? China was building a new coal plant every two days. You know, global coal use had shot up dramatically in the 90s and 2000s. Um, but since it was published, the world has, has really turned a, a new page in some ways. You know, global coal use peaked back in 2013 and has been declining modestly since. Uh, renewable energy and other clean energy sources are cheaper than coal in many countries today. And, you know, while it's, it's far too early to say that coal is going to go away, you know, to think that the 21st century will be completely dominated by coal as our, our primary energy source just seems a lot less likely than it did. Uh, a decade or two ago. And part of that is because, you know, we are not living in a, a no policy baseline world anymore. You know, the world has taken some limited steps toward enacting real climate policies. We spent a lot of money on energy innovation, on subsidizing the deployment of clean energy technologies, which has driven down their prices. Um, and so we're sort of moving to a, a current policy world where we expect, you know, somewhere in the range of three degrees warming by the end of the century, instead of the the four to five degrees warming that seemed, you know, if not likely, at least possible uh, a couple of decades ago. And so that, that'll be linear. So if we say three degrees by the end of the century and we're at one degree 
already more or less. Uh, and I should be clear, I always get in trouble with this. We're talking one degree Celsius, aren't we? Uh, yeah, we're talking uh, Celsius here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, because people uh, sometimes say I should, because well, I like to convert it to percentage terms and I always get in terrible trouble for that. But a stockbroker is always thinking about percentages. But uh, it, coming back to the point, if it's linear and we're one degree so far and three degrees by the end of the century on, on a, a reasonable business as usual case, then in 20 years time, we'd, we'd be a fifth of the way along that two degree difference, if I can put it that way. So heading towards, I don't know, uh, one and, a, one and a quarter, one and a third, one and a half degrees? Yeah, uh, we'll probably end up at one and a half degrees in about two decades, somewhere around there, depending on uh, exactly how fast our emissions are on, in a, a current policy world. But, you know, it, it's important to give some caveats around that three degree number, right? You know, as I mentioned earlier, there's this big uncertainty on how sensitive the climate is. And so in a current policy world, our best estimate is we'd end up with, with about three degrees warming, but we could have as low as, you know, a little under two degrees warming or a bit above four degrees warming if we get unlucky uh, and have high climate sensitivity. So, you know, three degrees is not a great world. You know, it's certainly one that some human systems could adapt to, but poor countries and, and systems with less resources could not, and, and the natural world would be devastated in a three degree future. But we also can't rule out, you know, some really catastrophic scenarios of, of four degrees warming plus under current policies um, if we get unlucky with, with these uh, sort of feedbacks. Um, and so that's a real reason to, you know, be have a little bit of caution and to try to control the one source of uncertainty we can, which is our future emissions. Um, yeah. The other thing I should mention is, you know, we're all talking about 2100, but the world doesn't end in 2100, even though our models do. In fact, my three-year-old daughter will be alive, hopefully, after 2100. Um, and as long as our emissions remain above zero, the world will continue to warm. So a current policy world might only be three degrees in 2100, but it might be three and a half, four degrees in 2150 um, and up from there. So, you know, we still need to get emissions to zero. And I think uh, when we say, again, there's three degrees, I believe the uh, what what is the 20th century global average temperature? Is that a number you you, you have at the in your carry in your head? Uh, you mean global average absolute temperature? It's probably somewhere in the range of 14 degrees C. And so you can, exp I think of the three degrees relative to that 14 degrees, but it's probably, that's a silly way to think about it because some things are very, some uh, uh, life forms and, and stuff are very <laughs> sensitive to small changes and others are relatively insensitive. So yeah, I, I, well, the, it, the way I like to think about it is uh, the last ice age, which was a very different planet than we're on today, was only four or five degrees colder on average than today's temperatures. Um, you know, when we talk about these global averages, we're sort of ignoring a lot of variability. So three degrees warming globally is, you know, four degrees warming over the land. Uh, and it's five, six degrees warming in the Arctic maybe seven even. Um, and so, you know, some parts of the world warm much faster than others. The oceans generally warm slower than the land. The tropics generally warm slower than the poles. Uh, and so a three degree average global warming uh, can be much, much more than that in some parts of the planet. And I think the other thing you mentioned about the long duration, but uh, even if the world stops warming, if we stopped increasing carbon emissions, the uh, impacts of, say, thermal inertia in the ocean that John Englander measured would still carry on for a long time after that. That is, all that heat that's been stored in the oceans would have to be returned to the atmosphere, wouldn't it? Yeah, so that's an area where we've actually had some interesting progress in recent years. Um, you know, 
it turns out that if you were to actually cut emissions all the way down to zero uh, tomorrow, what would happen is, you know, there'd be this thermal inertia in the oceans. The oceans would continue warming up. Um, but at the same time, you'd start having the level of CO2 in the atmosphere start to fall. Um, because if emissions are zero, then the ocean and the land are taking up more CO2 than we're emitting. Uh, and those two end up kind of canceling each other out pretty nicely. And so once you get emissions all the way down to zero, you pretty much just have flat temperatures after that. The, the thermal inertia gets canceled out by the falling CO2. And if you look at other greenhouse gases, the warming effect of getting rid of all the aerosols gets counteracted uh, by the cooling effect of all the methane that we've emitted going away. So um, you have a lot of different complicated things canceling each other out. But as a you know first approximation, you end up with flat temperatures once you get emissions down to zero. Now, there is the downside of that, which means you know, even if we get emissions to zero, the planet isn't going to start cooling. If we want the planet to cool, we actually need to suck emissions out of the atmosphere. Um, and, you know, roughly speaking, if we wanted to get the planet back down to where it was in the year 1970 in terms of global temperatures, we'd have to suck out all of the carbon we've emitted since 1970 from the atmosphere, which is a, you know, gargantuan amount. Um, and so while it's good that the Earth doesn't have this huge amount of additional warming built in, uh, it also means that it's fiendishly hard to sort of bring things back uh, if we, you know, do get our act together. Yeah, I, and, I, and I guess that's so far beyond where we are at the moment uh, that uh, it's something your uh, children and my grandchildren will have to contemplate for themselves. Fortunately, as an as a avid science fiction person, I always believe science will eventually have an answer or human will willpower. Let me just move on a little bit um, uh, rather than talking about policies to, to mitigate it, I, uh, it's impacts that I guess interest me. And we've talked about the various sort of uh, symptoms of climate change, um, uh, melting, melting Arctic ice, uh, ice uh, sea level rise, uh, flooding damage. A lot of those relate to water, of course, uh, uh, and then droughts. But uh, actually, can I ask about rainfall? Because here in Australia, at least, uh, there's a sort of confusion about what the impact of climate change is going to mean for rainfall in various different regions. And some of the people I've spoken to before said that this was an area of the where the modelling hadn't improved as much. I mean, I, I'm guessing climate change and changes in warp, water vapour in the air are going to mean changes in rainfall in various different places. But do we know much more about that than we used to? So... Precipitation and changes in rainfall is a tough one. It's a lot harder to get right than temperature. Um, there's some regions of the world uh, where we do have a fair amount of agreement uh, in terms of the direction of changes. You know, North Africa, the Mediterranean is probably going to get a fair bit drier. Uh, areas in the tropical, uh, in, in the tropics, and, and particularly around the tropical oceans, are going to get a lot wetter. Um, but, you know, where I live in California, for example, half the models show it getting wetter in a warming world and half the models show it getting drier. There's really not that much agreement. Um, where there is agreement in the models is that when it does rain, the rainfall will be heavier because there'll be more water vapor in general in the atmosphere. And so you'll, in many cases, end up with, you know, potentially fewer rainy days, but more intense uh, precipitation when you do have rainfall, uh, which obviously can lead to more flooding. Um, it can also, in, in places like where we live, that has a, a sort of uh, a Mediterranean or monsoonal type of climate, um, lead to longer dry seasons uh, and shorter but more intense rainy seasons, um, which obviously here has, has played havoc with our, our fire conditions. And I can talk about that in a bit if you want. Um, and so, you know, 
the the more severe rainfall is is really the most confident prediction we have from climate models in terms of how precipitation is going to change in the future. And, and that also affects you know things like tropical cyclones, which are going to have much heavier uh, precipitation. We've already started seeing that in the observational data in the last few decades. Yes, uh, and I think uh, the. Um... There was disagreement at one stage about the cyclones, whether there'd be more of them or whether they'd just be more intense. But let, I don't want to spend too long talking about bushfires because if there's one thing Australians think they know a lot about, uh, it's bushfires. And it's uh, am not amusing, but uh, it comes as no surprise, having sat through the Australian summer, to see what's happening in California. But I was interested to read that there's this new, to me, concept um, of uh, vapour vapor pressure differential in the air as has been a, a I probably used the wrong uh, phrase there uh, which is a measure of how much uh, water water the air can hold as opposed to how much it does hold as, a, as an indication of bushfire vulnerability could you have I got that right or could you talk about that for a second yeah so it's, it's vapor pressure deficit is, is the term we tend to use um, but more broadly, you know, what we see with climate change and wildfire, and, and you know, I, I know a bit more about this in the Western US where I live, which is suffering catastrophic fires as we speak. Um, but here, at least, there's a very strong link between how dry the vegetation is, what we call fuel aridity, and how large an area of, of burning you have in any given year. So years that have drier vegetation tend to have much larger burn areas than years that don't. Um, in fact, here in California, we actually have less fires now than we had 30 years ago, but the fires that happen are burning about five times more area. And so it's really, you know, not a change in ignitions per se, it's a change in conditions on the ground that's leading to these catastrophic fires. Uh, and so what vapor pressure deficit is, is essentially a measure of how much moisture is lost by soils and plants, um, which itself is a function of this difference between how much water vapor the air can hold and how much it does actually hold. Um, and as temperatures increase, we tend to see the vapor pressure deficit increase as well, which leads to faster drying of vegetation. Drier vegetation then becomes fuel for these rapidly spreading wildfires. Uh, and so, you know, in the Western U.S., we've seen a, a fairly large increase in vapor pressure deficit in recent years uh, uh, that's accompanied sort of a drying out of fuels. Uh, we've also seen our rainy season shrinking and our fire season becoming longer, you know, as much as uh, a month or two longer in some places. Um, and so the combination of all those things, a longer dry season, drier vegetation, has really sort of made the conditions ripe for uh, catastrophic fires. We've also done a really terrible job of managing our forests, but that's a whole separate issue. Uh, yes, and, 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 and the two get so confused. So the contribution of uh, climate change to, to, uh, to bushfires as opposed to the alternative argument that there hasn't been enough management uh, one way or another uh, is a very familiar argument to us here in Australia. Uh, and so bushfires are one obvious uh, area where I think public concern about climate change is going to manifest itself. But if, if you're... If I was to ask you where things are going to show up in the public consciousness over the next ten to twenty years, what where would you uh, where would you be looking? So I think the the types of events that most directly affect us are things like extreme heat waves. Um, you know, we had a, a truly ridiculous heat wave. It was like forty three degrees centigrade briefly where I live um, a couple weeks ago, uh, right before all these fires kicked off. Um, and mind you, I live in an area where, you know, it's, it's rarely anywhere close to that. In fact, uh, almost no one has air conditioners here because the, t the climate is usually so temperate. 
and so we're seeing, you know, a noticeable increase in the amount of extreme heat days in many areas. And a lot of people who've, who've lived in, in these places for a long time can really tell you, you know, it, it used to never get this hot. Um, so that's really become front of mind for a lot of people. Obviously, the wildfires right now, you know, our, our sky was orange uh, two weeks ago um, because of all the smoke blowing over. Um, hurricanes are another area where there's, you know, the there certainly is a climate signal in hurricanes. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that uh warmer sea surface temperatures are a precondition for the strongest hurricanes. Uh, and so as ocean temperatures warm, the conditions for the formation of those strong hurricanes are, are more common. Um, and when those strike, you know, there certainly is a lot of focus on, on what, if any, is the climate component there. Um, you know, those are probably the ones that are, are most relevant for people around here. Um, certainly if, if you live in a low-lying coastal area, uh, you're going to see storm surges that are potentially more severe than anything you've seen before because of the combination of, of sea level rise and, um, you know, higher rainfall from some of these storms uh, and, and more intensity. And so... so so I think yeah. it actually shows up in house prices. I think there's some uh, studies uh, that show that, you know, uh, flood prone uh, or sea level potentially exposed house prices have have uh, not done as well in, in the market in the United States as, as, as other houses. Uh, so that, that, that was interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Zeke, Zeke uh, uh, so, so what, what is the science? Uh, what's, what's next for the science of climate change? I mean, it's a huge international uh, sort of effort. As I understand it, the, the models, there's up to 100 models that are running all these experiments and simulations on all of these different pathways. Uh, and you, you, there's been research published recently that, that, that said that, the, as you point out, that the um, range of error has, has been narrowed very, very slowly and gradually. So what are, the, what are the directions that climate scientists are going to be working hard on for the, for the next few years? Sure. So there's, you know, a lot of areas uh, of the Earth's climate uh, besides just the temperature that we need to get a lot better and that, you know, newer models are making real improvements on. You know, every time we have a new generation of models, we're running it on faster and faster supercomputers. Uh, we're making higher resolution estimates. So back in the the last round of climate modeling that happened in, in the run-up to the, the 2013 IPCC report, uh, the, most of the models ran at somewhere between 250 and 100 kilometer uh, grid cells. So the way that models simulate the planet is they essentially break up the entire planet into a bunch of different cubes uh, that you know, go, go all the way around the planet and from the bottom of the ocean to the top of the atmosphere. And each of those cubes is talking to all the other cubes around it as to, you know, what's happening in real time and resolving all the physical processes that, you know, affect neighboring regions. Uh, and so the higher resolution you can get your model, the better you can understand sort of regional and local changes that might happen in a warming world. Um, the better you can resolve things like tropical cyclones, uh, like intense storms, like heavy rainfall. Um, whereas if you, you know, are just looking at a 250 kilometer box, it's really hard to figure out exactly what's happening with precipitation patterns there, for example. Um, we are also uh, making some real progress on modeling uh, things like the carbon cycle. So as the warm world warms, the ability of the biosphere and the oceans to take up carbon changes. And exactly how that changes has been an area of big uncertainty. And so models are getting better representations of the carbon cycle. They're better capturing expected changes in vegetation as the world warms. Um, you know, and, and sometimes you come up with very interesting results from that. You know, for example, some models have been showing that 
past a certain point uh, of deforestation, you could have the Amazon transition into more of a savanna type ecosystem as the world warms. Um, and that sort of thing would be hard to get out of some of these older model, lower resolution models. Uh, and then we're also trying to improve our, our understanding of uh, sea level rise, which is still one of the biggest uncertainties we have. Um, you know, if you look at the sort of central estimates, they only expect about, you know, a meter of sea level rise in the high emission scenario, you know, maybe two thirds of a meter in the, the most likely emission scenario. Um, but that could be up to two meters, and some people argue it could be even higher. Um, we simply don't really have a great understanding of some of the dynamic processes involving ice sheets. So how the ice sheets might be moved. Yeah, so, and melt so, more some quickly. of these are, some of these are binary events, aren't they? Like, I mean, I, I read about the Th Thwaites Glacier, and it seems to me that if it it just suddenly starts, you know, it gets undermined and starts moving quickly, then things could happen quite fast in a way that I'm, I don't think any global level model could actually capture. Exactly. And, and so getting better sort of sub-models for things like the Antarctic glaciers uh, or the Greenland ice sheet is, is really important. Uh, and that requires a lot of data collection, a lot of scientists out there in the field measuring these things, doing remote sensing work, trying to figure out exactly how these ice sheets might change. Um, and, and yeah, so that's that's an area where we've seen a, a fair amount of improvement. Um, we're also trying to get a better understanding of the Earth's past um, because there are previous periods in the Earth's history that can potentially tell us, you know, what we might be in for this time around. There was a, a period called the Paleo-Eocene Thermal Maximum um, that was, I believe, about 35 million years ago. I could be getting that number slightly wrong. I'm not a paleo person. <laughs> Um, where the world warmed quite rapidly in a, a fairly short period of time. Um, the exact reasons are, are still a little unclear, though. There's a bunch of different hypotheses. Yeah, um, here, here in Australia, geologists often refer to that period as evidence that humans have got nothing to do with the current period of global warming because it happened in ancient history. And I don't want to uh, go into that, what I regard as relatively silly argument, but it, but it is interesting. Let me uh, just uh, cut to something that I don't... I th don't properly appreciate. You mentioned before that you know some parts of the world are going to warm much more uh, quickly than others, and the obvious one, I guess, is the Arctic and I think the Antarctic. Uh, uh, could you just explain briefly why that is the case? Sure. Um, so the different levels of or different rates of warming uh, happen in different regions for somewhat different reasons. Uh, so the ocean tends to warm the slowest. Uh, and the reason for that is, you know, the ocean has an immense amount of thermal inertia. It takes a long time for the heating of surface waters to, to work all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. And so that sort of buffers the rate of warming over the ocean. The land in general doesn't have that. The land responds much faster to changing temperatures. Now, in the Arctic, you have a couple different things going on. One of them is that the Arctic has a, a large amount of snow and ice cover. So this albedo feedback that I mentioned earlier, the, the fact that, you know, ice and snow are, are bright and reflective and whatever is beneath them usually isn't, uh, plays a big role there. So as the Arctic warms, as it gets less snow and ice cover, as it gets more exposed ocean water under what is sea ice now, that absorbs a lot more of the sun's heat and warms up the region. Um, so that's a big one. And then there's also some uh, reasons due to changes in atmospheric circulation that end up warming the Ar Arctic a bit as well as the Earth warms. Um, and so, you know, those are broadly the, the drivers of, of different levels of warming. The Antarctic is, is actually kind of an interesting case um, because the Antarctic is so big and so landlocked uh, and has so much ice, uh, sort of albedo feedbacks like I was talking about happen a lot more slowly there, um, particularly in the interior. 
Uh, and so there's less warming expected in the Antarctic than the Arctic uh, in at least this century. Um, though eventually, if you were to, you know, leave the Earth at three or four degrees above pre-industrial levels for long enough, you'd have most of the Antarctic melt as well. Yeah, and I, I, we, we've probably, uh, I've, it's quite a lot for me to absorb, and you've talked a, a lot about stuff that I find really interesting, but if we've got five more minutes or a couple more minutes, I might just ask uh, about ocean currents, which is another subject that's uh, dear to Australians in, you know, El, El Nino and La Nina and Indian Ocean Dipole are sort of big drivers of weather, um, uh, and the Southern uh, Ocean Oscillator as well. So, broadly speaking, for the for the really big ocean currents, what what's the impact of climate change going to be? Is it going to accelerate the, the you know, is it going to be bad for the current flows, or are the current flows going to change, and that's going to be bad for the climate? Or, or how should I how should I think about all that? So this isn't an area where I, I have personally too much expertise, so I want to avoid you know talking beyond what I know well. Um, there's certainly some impacts that are, are fairly well established. There's been a number of papers suggesting that uh, El Nino and La Nina events might become a bit more intense as the Earth warms. Uh, there's certainly some evidence that the um, thermohaline circulation or the uh, sort of ocean conveyor belt, as we call it, uh, is going to slow down this century. Um, and the reason for that is because uh, the a lot of ocean circulation is driven by um, evaporation, um, causing surface waters to get saltier and more dense and sink down. Um, and a lot of that happens in the north region of the North Atlantic. And as we start seeing more and more ice melt uh, from Greenland, it's pouring a ton of fresh water into North Atlantic waters and making the surface waters less salty. And that's counteracting this sort of sinking of salty water that drives one of the big ocean conveyor belts. Um, and so as uh, Greenland melts, we expect that ocean conveyor belt to slow down. Um, and that is certainly going to have uh, a number of, of regional temperature changes. Um, and there's a lot of folks who, who focus on studying that. But, but again, it, ocean currents isn't really my area of expertise, so I, I want to be a little careful when talking about it. Uh, that's great, Zeke. Uh, look, I think we've covered... Uh, a lot of the areas I plan to cover um, is is the um, so I probably should just say thanks very much. It's been very very helpful explanation, and I'm particularly uh, in learning about thinking about um, uh, the secondary feedback parts and how important they are to the overall estimate, and also at the advances in the modelling. Um, is there any final thoughts you'd you'd like to uh, leave us with? Um, if, if we can sort of go back to the, the mitigation side of things, I, I just want to emphasize that, you know, while uh, a current policy world might end us end up with a three degrees warming, you know, that's by no means our destiny. You know, we can take a lot more action. We can reduce emissions much more quickly. You know, we can't reduce them to zero tomorrow, but we could reduce them to zero by, you know, 2060, 2070 and avoid two degrees warming. So, you know, when, when we talk a lot about climate change, a lot of it is doom and gloom, um, but there is some real positive signs happening in the world around things like clean energy, electric vehicles. You know, we've, we've turned the corner from the worst case outcomes. We now just need to bend the curve down to, you know, the, the outcomes that we want, which is to, to limit warming to below two degrees. I agree with that. At least, uh, you know, my area of expertise is in the electricity side of things. And, uh, uh, I'm I'm certain that if enough political will, uh, we can get emissions in uh, stationary energy down 
to pretty close to zero. I think there's a lot of harder bits of uh, sectors to, to, to move out. And it was interesting mm. reading Carbon Brief this week to point out how food production... Uh, <laughs> that's but, a tough uh, one, yep. <laughs> uh, that's that near and dear to my heart, I must say, or rather too near and too dear. Um, Zeke, thanks very, very much for your talk today. It's been fantastic. And uh, I look forward to reading your analysis going forward. Thanks. It's uh, great to be on. And that was Zeke Housefather from the Breakthrough Institute um, over in California. Look, um, doesn't just write very well. He actually speaks very well, David, and just sort of underlines the urgency of the action. Something that doesn't seem to register very well in um, in his own country, in the um, in the um, on one side of politics, and in this country too. Well, uh, you know, it's interesting. All around the world, I think it's it's uh, you can look at it. There's a there's a fight, obviously, politically between those that want to do something about climate change and recognise the necessity. I think there are a lot of comments that, that Zeke made that rang true, but the one that uh, most impacted on me was the point that climate change is not going to end in 2100. You know, my grandkids, I hope, will still be alive in 2100. Um, and uh, so he was talking about his kids then and their impact. And I think this is something that everyone, every senior person in Australia really needs to think about. It, what, Why are they doing this? You know, what is the future that they want for Australians? Mm. It's a good question and an imponderable one and one we've been trying to answer for a long, long time. David, is there anything else that we need to say before we wrap up for today? Uh, No, Giles, I think that's about uh, it. Well, thank you, David. Look, that was a fantastic um, interview with Zeke. Um, Thanks to all our listeners. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. And um, we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Actually, Giles, actually, I just remembered one more thing. Sorry, why one more thing, which is uh, if you want to know where we're going, you know, one of the things that's come through, the most, the biggest element of the new uh, technology roadmap is the focus on gas. Uh, I've just been having a look as part of that as what's been happening to the US shale gas sector. And if we're going following the US down that route, uh, there's many, many billions of dollars that's going to be wiped off uh, shareholder value and taxpayer dollars going forward. So probably even worse than the Australian submarines, but let's wait and see. Nicely wrapped up. Thank you, David. And bye for everyone. And uh, we'll talk again next week. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future.